Well, it doesn't take long, really, probably not much longer than one evening in front of the televised news to understand that we are no longer living in our grandparents' America. In fact, if you're like me, you've begun to wonder as you watch whether you're going crazy. It, it doesn't take more than a few minutes in some cases for me to get to a point where I want to, to throw things at the television and, and, and I start dialoguing with an inanimate object that's talking at me. It seems as though everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. And that there's not an ounce of common sense left in the world. But as believers who know our Bibles, we're aware, aren't we, that it's much more than a lack of common sense. There are undercurrents of a much more serious nature. And really what's being challenged is God's rule and his authority. And his all-sufficient word is being pushed off to the side, all of that being assaulted in really every facet of our society. You can look at it almost in any arena, and you can see that God's wisdom is not the wisdom that the United States of America has chosen to adhere to. That's true for our society, but it is not only ours. I think if you look carefully, you'll see that all of Western civilization is aggressively seeking to put off and to put away all remnants of a biblical worldview, a biblical sense of what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. The Canadian Parliament in late November passed a bill prohibiting the correction of an unbiblical view of sexual identity. I have here actually what was known as the C4 bill, or is known, and it's a, bill, it's a bill that outlaws conversion therapy. It's dealing with transgenderism and the issues of gender in general. I want to read part of this to you. This is from the preamble. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because among other things, now note this these, this, these words are very important. Among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. And whereas, in light of those harms, it's important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. It's interesting to me that, that they talk about the fact that it's, it's no longer lawful to address anyone who is not a heterosexual or anyone whose gender is not consistent with their biological, what they call here their sex assigned to a person at birth. You just can't get away from it, can you? 
I mean, who assigned that sex, that biological designation? The bill says this, conversion therapy means a practice, a treatment, or service designated to A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change their gender identity to cisgender, that's the second time we bumped into that term. Cisgender means that you, you are a person whose sense of your personal identity and gender corresponds to your biological sex. You are no longer allowed to pursue the change of a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. You're no longer to speak with anyone about gender identity and try and, and see them aligned or cisgendered and see it's prohibited by law now that you would change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. They repeat all of that again, saying it's unlawful as well to repress or to reduce all of that. In other words, hands off. In other words, by Canadian law, you are not allowed to provide counsel regarding gender identity based on the clear teaching of the Bible. Why? Well, because the Bible and all of its teaching about gender is merely mythology. This is the bigger issue. This is where we're headed. Scripture is mythology. It propagates myths. The Bible propagates what is a mere, and I quote, assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. There is no preference. There is no truth. Speaking truth, providing biblical counsel amounts here to hate speech. And one has to wonder what other sins will fall under this protected umbrella before long. Pastor Andrew DeBartolo from the Liberty Coalition in Canada, you might want to write that down, Liberty Coalition of Canada, you can look it up. They've got a lot of good material on this. He says this, quote, the definition is intentionally broad and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who speaks, who either speaks against homosexuality, transgenderism, or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual transgender actions and lifestyle. This means of January 8th, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. And then the law goes on to specify that if you, in fact, try to do any of that, you're liable to imprisonment for up to five years, or if you advertise in any way conversion therapy, you are guilty of an indictable offense liable to imprisonment for up to two years. That bill passed in the Canadian Parliament, which purports to have both Christians and conservatives in it, that bill passed unanimously. There was not one person who stood in opposition. In fact, as, as I listened to a blog, uh, uh, 
I listened to a, to a video um, exchange. Andrew DeBartolo talked about the fact that not only was there no dissenting vote, but that there were actually high fives, handshakes, and a celebratory uh, attitude in the, in the hall. Brothers and sisters, understand that this is not just aimed at doctors. This is not just aimed at psychologists. This is aimed at the church, and beyond that, it is aimed at you. That's where it's heading. It is aimed at you as parents. And our day is coming, and I think it's much nearer than perhaps we know, and we want as elders to make sure that we're talking about these things before they're on our doorstep. It's important to do that. It's important for you to wrestle with these things and begin to think to yourself, how am I going to respond? What am I going to do? Will I stand or will I cave? In 2012, California passed Senate Bill 1172, which banned gay conversion. In 2020, the Democratic Party announced at its national convention that it would, quote-unquote, ban harmful conversion therapy practices. This week, I'm sure many of you got it also in your, in your email, but as Charles mentioned last week, there was a letter that went out from John MacArthur asking pastors to, quote, confront, a spirit, confront in a spirit of love and mercy the damning sins legalized in our culture and join the nationwide effort to preach on a biblical view of sexual morality on January 16th, 2022 and proclaim the gospel that is now criminalized. And that really is what's at stake here. It's the gospel. And you can understand that, right? That if you criminalize the confrontation of the sins of men, then what use is there for the good news? You, you criminalize confronting sin and then you marginalize the good news. If you can't identify the disease, then there's no need to talk about the cure. And you will hear it over and over and over again that to address these things, and I'm certain that some who will listen to these things will think that we are being biased, homophobic, transphobic, all, all the labels that get tossed our direction, but there, nothing could be further from the truth. You understand this, that in the realm of cancer, if you have a life-threatening terminal disease, you go to the doctor and you don't know why you're feeling so lousy. It is not hate for the doctor to help you understand that you have a deadly disease and for him to propose a cure. That is love. Everything's backwards. Everything is backwards. It's ironic to me that this bill is, by, in its own words, opposed to conversion. I mean, if Christianity is anything at all, <laughs> it is about conversion. Not just of homosexuals or transsexuals, but of everyone that submits their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, one of the greatest joys of coming to Christ is that you are converted from what you used to be. 
that your perversion gives way to, to conversion is reason to rejoice. You see, we want to see people changed by the saving gospel of Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that violent men become peacemakers, that the lazy become laborers, that takers become givers, that drunkards dry out, that foul-mouthed people learn to speak what is good and what edifies, that the immoral are transformed into faithful husbands, that the sons of disobedience are converted to become the sons of God and disciples of Christ. Praise God for the converting power, the transformative power of the gospel. Well, as MacArthur recommended and the Canadian pastors have asked, he was simply lending his name to the cause. Next week, actually, marks the first annual Biblical Sexuality Sunday. Everybody's got their Sunday these days. The good news is is that all over the nation, and I, I expect through much of the globe, thousands will be preaching on what the Bible has to say about biblical sexuality. We want to lend our voice to that cause. And uh, I thought it would take a few weeks um, because I think it's necessary for us. And you need to understand the spirit in which we offer these things. We are not preaching on this topic to stir up rancor, but we're hoping instead to bring an issue to light. We're hoping to clarify what God has said regarding sexuality, and we're doing that for the good of people. We are doing that in love. We are doing that to call sinners to repentance and faith. We are doing that to edify the church and to remind the church again of the holy standard of God, which we dare not forsake. And as I said, though we are likely to be accused of being homophobic and transphobic, we are not that. We are rather seeking to assert the truth about sin and about salvation. And I want to say this morning that if you are given to one of these various expressions of sexuality, I want you to realize, I want you to understand that everyone here, there isn't an, a human being accepted from this statement. Everyone, each of us, all of us are sexual sinners. Everyone, each of us, all of us have fallen short of God's standard in this area of our lives. All of us are in need of grace and the transformation that comes through repentance and faith in Christ. So none of us, nobody here, I, I, I trust that nobody here sits in, in judgment over anybody else. We look in the mirror of God's word and we realize humbly that we fall short and we would pray that you too might come to realize your own need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say this, that even, even in the weeks ahead as we take on the issues of homosexuality and transgenderism, we're speaking more, we're not talking to individuals as much as we are speaking more broadly about the ideology 
that is going on in our culture? What is, what is the wind that is blowing that leads so many down this path? I also want to say that we're not trying to get in the face of the government. We're called to honor the governing authorities, and we're even called to submit to them where possible. But when the state seeks to dictate to the church and to society at large, whether it be through legislation or just straight coercion, that a child in the womb is not a human being until it's viable, or when the state seeks to impress upon society that marriage somehow is broader than one man and one woman for life, when the state seeks to teach us that gender is fluid and not determined by one's anatomy or sexuality, when the state seeks to tell us that homosexuality and transgenderism are as harmless an expression of sexuality as monogamous heterosexuality, when the state seeks to, to tell us what we can and cannot address from the pulpit and from the word of God, when they render biblical truth as hate speech, beloved, we must with Peter and John rise up and say whether it is right in the sight of God for us to heed you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. God, beloved, will not be muzzled. And these things, life and marriage and family and gender and sexuality, they are not first and foremost things that belong to you or things that belong to us. These are things that belong to God. They are his. He created them. He defines them. He regulates them. He determines their bounds. And it is here that the governing authorities then step over the line. It is, it is not for the state. It is not for society. It is not for the individual to contend with the Lord Jesus Christ about these things. They belong to him. And we as Christ's people, we as the church, have tethered ourselves inextricably to this book and to the things revealed in it as the only rule for life and godliness. We will gladly render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but we cannot render to Caesar what belongs to God. And faithful Christians, I'll say it again, faithful Christians have no option but to protest with an attitude of humility and respect and gentleness, but stand firm we will, and we must. And it becomes clear, doesn't it, when you look around at our public education system, when you look at the politicians, when you look at big tech, when you look at the companies that are vying for the culture's dollars, when you look at the athletes and the, the movie stars and all the public figures, 
when you look at the media darlings, you'll note that they're all on board. You think to yourself, surely someone will stand. I've become increasingly convinced that if anyone is going to stand, it must be the church. We are the last line of defense, and there are very few who stand with us. And the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, and it will not do to simply quietly carry on within these four walls and within the walls of our homes to simply live quietly and and sort of say nothing. I'm thankful for this opportunity to address this. I want to spend this week and at least the next two dealing with these matters. I want to consider really one question, and most of that by providing a context for the next couple of weeks. And that that question is simply this. How did we get here? How did we get here? I'm sure some of you have heard of the swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania, Leah Thomas, who is a biological male, and he swam on the men's team at Penn for three years. He's now living as a transgendered woman, and having undergone a year of testosterone suppressants, Leah is now swimming for the Penn's women's team. It's no surprise then, at least it's not to me, having grown up in athletic circles, I'm sure it's no surprise to you that Leah Thomas has broken freestyle records in the 200 meter, which she happened to win by seven seconds. It was the fastest time in the country. Leah Thomas broke a freestyle record in the 500 meter breaking an Ivy League record, and then in the 1,650 meter, Thomas broke a program record, a meet record, a pool record, beating the second place female swimmer by more than 38 seconds. I guess in the driving world, that would be like winning the Indy 500 by 400 miles. This is insanity. (laughs) By any definition, this is insanity. And you can feel the frustration even of our our social conservatives who don't know what to do with all of this. It's, It's insanity not only that a biological male should be permitted to swim competitively with women, and it's not only that his setting record times that shatter and ultimately eclipse a whole lot of other female swimmers who have worked very, very hard for the records that they formerly owned. It's not even that a biological male would entertain the idea that he is a female and that he would follow through with this regimen of hormone therapy and surgeries. All of that is strange, but to me the weirdest thing is that the society has gone to such lengths that it's willing to play along with the deception. This is the emperor's new clothes, real time. And the question is, how did we get here? And I think it's so important for us to understand where this all came from. And there's no way of bringing in every thread and every force and factor that contributed to this. This is a 
This is a broad and too broad a swipe at trying to provide some sort of explanation, but try I will. And I want to give you today really three biblical reasons for the sexual insanity that envelops our culture. Three contributing factors, if you will, that leave us here in the whirlwind wondering what happened. First, let me say this, and this is our first point. We abandoned Revelation. We abandoned Revelation. And again, we're looking at things very broadly. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a, a philosophy. I'm talking about a worldview. I'm talking about history here. And, and what I'm saying when I say we've abandoned Revelation, I really mean two things. One, that we've abandoned what God has revealed to us in his word, but it's beyond that. We have in pride abandoned the notion that we're even dependent upon Revelation. No, we are a proud people. And by us, I'm speaking here again of Western culture, I'm speaking of America, I'm speaking of the breadth of our society. We are a proud people who've come to believe that truth and reality and meaning in life can be discovered by man, by science. Or that it can be, get this, determined by society or by individuals. Those two things. Reality, truth, can be discovered by man and it can be determined by man. That is the way our culture thinks. There was a time coming out of the Reformation when Western society acknowledged what the Bible taught and they looked, essentially, we looked to God for understanding. We looked to God dependently. We looked to God as though we had derived our very life from him and our very culture from him and our very means of organizing our culture and governing our culture the thought of God dominated not only government, but our education system. It governed the family and all the definitions that most of us have just come down the pike assuming because we grew up in these waters. Think about the waters your children are growing up in. How polluted and how confusing that, that river has become. Beloved, truth is revealed. And truth is only discovered in as much as men will seek God, both in his word and by evaluation of the creation that he has made, and ultimately we will only discover what God has decided to reveal. The secret things belong to the Lord. There was a long time when people thought the earth was flat. In time, God allowed that to be revealed. There was a long time when people died of various diseases. And in time, the Lord allowed, through scientific research and all the rest of that, that the certain, certain medications to take care of certain things. And we've had the blessing of living on the other side of some of that. There are things yet to be revealed and discovered. Man is not autonomous. 
And people used to look beyond themselves to understand their world. This is the way our republic, and again, the whole of Western culture really was founded. The very definitions of all of those things came from the scriptures themselves. And that's, that's very obvious, or at least it should be to us. And this is of critical importance if you're to understand why we are where we are. It's why all of this is so mind-boggling and seems so out of sync. There has been a radical shift in worldview, a radical shift in the way that people think. And that worldview came piece by piece, bit by bit, through the shifting sands of culture. And again, I know I'm oversimplifying. But those shifts progressively led from people asking, what has God said to what do I feel? We live in the what do I feel, what do I think culture. There was a time where what did God say and what has he revealed to us and what does he want? That used to dominate the day. Again, not perfectly and not in every heart, but it dominated the day of this, cult, this country back, back a couple hundred years ago. You see, the dependence on the divine has given way to a radical independence. And theonomy, God rule, has given way to autonomy, self-rule. And so when you look at this thing historically, and I hope you'll hang with me here because I think it's, it's helpful. Again, it doesn't explain everything, but I mentioned the, Revol- uh, the Reformation earlier. There was a time in the 16th and 17th centuries where, where people were dependent upon biblical revelation, but that gave way eventually to something called the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries. And as the name suggests, enlightenment, it it, it was a move out of the dark, at least in the minds of humans. It's been dubbed the age of reason. It was a time in history when we moved away from traditional authorities, the Bible, the church, etc., in the direction of a growing confidence in humanity. It was very humanistic. Immanuel Kant summarized the motto um, of of the Enlightenment as dare to know, have courage to use your own reason. And a number of wonderful things came out of the Enlightenment. I don't mean to to, uh, denigrate it all in science and mathematics and politics and arts. A a lot of great things came out of the Enlightenment. But, But what we're talking here is about an intellectual shift and a moral shift from trusting the word of God to instead relying upon the mind of man, the goodness of man. There was not there a step called romanticism that the Enlightenment gave way to. We're not going to deal with it, but what I do want you to understand is as we look at these movements, each one of these is a step further and further away from God, further away from objective truth. Reformation gave way to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment gave way to modernism in the 19th and 20th centuries. And as the name suggests, it was sort of out with the old and in with the new, in with the modern. And it followed the Industrial Revolution and and urbanization. You had people moving together. 
And it, it, it rejected a lot of the confidence and certainty of the Enlightenment thinkers. And you can see that breakdown even within the art world if you're familiar with that at all, that the traditional realism, you look at pictures that were painted prior to this time and they looked like a photograph in paint. That realism gave way to uh, uh, what they called impressionism, which was just sort of a, a, a picture out of focus, if you will. They began to paint with little, little dots to kind of blur things. Think Claude Monet. Most of you know a painting by Monet. He painted beautiful things, but you can see that art was, was speaking the language of the culture as it, as it moved forward into modernism. And then you saw it, it come around full-orbed in modern art. You had Cubism and, and uh, 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 Picasso painting things that just looked out of place. They made you feel uncomfortable. They were weird. I was an art critic, you can tell. Uh, weird, uh, you know. Uh, uh. They were pushing the boundaries, if you will, to a new way of viewing the world. And this same thing was paralleled in just about every sphere of culture. Modernism rejected religious belief even further, and they emphasized man's reliance upon himself for the answers to life. And appealing to the scriptures or appealing to divinity, all of that just became passe. This was the period in Germany and in Europe where we had higher criticism, where, where academics began to sit over the text of the Bible and determine, in fact, what God actually did say, what Jesus actually did do, the, 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 the historical Jesus, right? And, and you remember that they whittled it all down to like 20%. Jesus only really said about 20% of what he's recorded as saying in the scriptures. You hear the arrogance in that. This was a period of growing secularism. This is the era of Charles Darwin. This is the era of Karl Marx. The ideas of God and creation and capitalism, all those things were challenged. All of these philosophical shifts were, were pushing God out, pushing the word of God out, and it left man intellectually and morally on his own, and he was okay with that. We had science, and we placed our confidence there. And then came World War I and World War II, and man's confidence in man was shaken mightily. And again, this is a gross oversimplification, but eventually it gives way to postmodernism. And postmodernism was a movement that, that that we find ourselves in today, we are the, the fruit of this for sure, that, that challenge the very notion of objective truth. One author says that the primary difference between modernism and postmodernism is that postmodernism gave up the quest for clarity and certainty. It's characterized by an assumption that truth is relative. Like beauty, it's, it's in the eye of the beholder. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is mine. And any truth claim at all is merely one among many. And no truth claim is more valid than another. One truth does not invalidate another truth. 
even if they're contradictory. And this helps us, doesn't it? Because you start thinking through this, okay, so if, if I assert that marriage is between a man and a woman and someone else says otherwise, well, we can just say we're both right. And neither one of us has, has a claim, has an edge up on the other. And if you claim you're a woman, Despite your deep voice and the shadow on your face, come five o'clock, who am I to challenge that? Because truth rests with you. You see, there's been a, an earthquake in worldviews. And we have moved so far away from truth being anything even closely related to reality that it's just baffling anymore to have a conversation even with people. We have moved into the subjective realm of personal perspective and subjective feelings and reality is no longer linked to revelation and it's not even any, any longer linked to, to sound reason. As I said before, it, it's not common sense. Every belief is legitimate and no one has the right to confront me or contradict me. And there is, brothers and sisters, a growing, a growing opposition to anyone who won't play the game. To anyone who won't bow before the, the new mindset. The individual reigns, how I think, how I feel, how I see it. Joseph Boot says, thus in postmodernism, I love this, the student has returned to chastise his own teacher and the disciple to slap his master. Think about that. Some of you have experienced that as parents. You see your children rearing up in their college age, to, to, to slap you around a bit and say, you don't know, you don't understand. You're old as dirt. We don't think this way any longer. And as we seek to understand the mess we're in, it's so important to see this philosophical shift that we have moved from a God who reveals objective truth in his word to trusting human reason and now all the way down to just pure subjectivism that the individual reigns. And the only thing that really stands today as a moral imperative is be true to yourself. That's why you've, you've heard the buzzword authenticity a lot, Yes? I'll listen to that person, they're authentic. Now, I like the word authentic personally. I want to be authentic. But understand that what's meant in this culture by authenticity is that an individual lives and abides by their own standard without being concerned with what others think about it and, and standing there unapologetically and unmoved. 
And we are on a centuries-old path away from the ideas of Bible and God, and we live now in a culture which no longer accepts the notion of absolute truth. That's especially true in morality and ethics. And God says has given way to who says? And unbelieving humanity has looked God in the eye and announced to him, you are not the boss of me. In fact, I don't even acknowledge you. This discussion is over and you have nothing left to say to me. Well, not only have we abandoned the revelation of God's word, but that brings us to our second point. We've embraced rebellion. We've abandoned revelation and secondly, we have embraced rebellion. Just as there's been a a descent down a a historical and philosophical flight of stairs to be where we are, understand that our culture has been on a very slippery slope morally for many, many decades, and it's just picking up pace. I know you feel it. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because if you've been breathing, you're aware of this. But we do need to acknowledge that this began gradually, this began as a covert thing, and one by one and decade by decade, we have watched the moral underpinnings of our society be kicked out. In other words, it didn't come down like a, like a building implosion where they just click a switch and the whole thing drops. It's been more like a crack in the dam that progressively leads to more erosion and more erosion until the thing finally breaks and floods down upon humanity. It's been very systematic, and it's been very gradual and steady, and eventually, and I don't know, that's that's a good question. When will the collapse utterly come? Most, I suppose, would trace the crack in the dam back to the sexual revolution that began back in in the 50s. Some of you will remember, perhaps, an era where one could not say the word virgin on television because it was too profane and tended to take people's minds to where the society just would not go. Maybe you, like I, grew up watching somebody named Ricky and Lucy, and you'll remember that they slept in separate twin beds. Do you recall that? Because we wouldn't want to put marital sexual relationships in the mind of anybody, though they be righteous. We now live in a day when modern media is normalizing things that we once thought utterly shameful. And so this tipping point of the sexual revolution, this, this mindset in the, in the attitude of Pinocchio that I have no strings on me was most expressed at the beginning of the sexual revolution. Some would point perhaps to the 20s, which of course were, were, were flappers and all the rest of that stuff, and we were, we were in a, a, a national mood of, of casting off the bonds of God, but 
It was interrupted by the Great Depression and then the World War, and uh, World War II anyway, and that set the stage really, when you think about it, with men at war and women moving into the factories, women out of the home. It set the stage really for the 50s where it all began to flower. We had an invasion by some British musicians, you may know them. We had a man who liked to, to, to thrust a lot while he, he sang songs by the name of Elvis. You remember that this was a period in time when the automobile was invented, the first time ever that people, couples, young couples, were able to escape their parents' home and property. The 50s gave way to the pill, feminism, mass media, a man by the name of Hugh Hefner, the acceptance of premarital sex, an increase in illicit drug use. The 70s then came along and we had full-blown cohabitation, no-fault divorce, legalized abortion, the free love generation, a decline in public decency laws and standards for entertainment. And it wasn't long, was it, before our culture began celebrating homosexuality, then legalizing gay marriage, now celebrating transgenderism. And the question is, how much further can we go? I'll never forget reading through the Bible for the first time in my life from beginning to end and reading of all that was beautiful in, in Genesis 2. And then getting to Leviticus 18, and, and my jaw dropped as a high schooler, thinking, what? There were things revealed in that chapter that had never crossed my mind by the grace of God. I'd never been exposed to those ideas. I found myself saying, why does God have to forbid this? <laughs> For the obvious reason that the human heart has sought out many devices. And this isn't new, beloved. This, this has gone round and round as cultures ascend and descend. We're not the first one on this merry-go-round. But you should know where we are on the merry-go-round. <laughs> Francis Schaeffer writes in the 70s, quote, the thinkables of the 80s and 90s. He's looking forward two decades. Those things that we could think about. He says, the thinkables of the 80s and 90s will certainly include things which most people today find unthinkable and immoral, even unimaginable and too extreme to suggest. Yet, since they do not have some overriding principle that takes them beyond relativistic thinking, when these things become thinkable and acceptable in the 80s and 90s, most people will not even remember that they were unthinkable in the 70s. And they will slide into each new thinkable without a jolt. Very insightful. One by one, the boundaries are being moved. Marriage and family are disintegrating. The church is declining. Respect for authority is waning. And the roots of our rebellion have produced the fruit of moral relativism and the society is beginning to simply unravel at breakneck speed. Suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where men are marrying men. We've got gender neutral bathrooms. We've got men and women who can't figure out what sex they are. We've got children being given transitioning hormones without their parents' consent. 
We are a nation like Israel of old who has forgotten how to blush. That is Jeremiah 6.15. And the tendency in all of this, the tendency of our culture is to think that the party just will go on forever and ever. It is the assumption of a culture that thinks that God is just like us and he simply winks at all of this indiscretion. It is all upside down. And the wicked and the aberrant and the perverted is celebrated and it is protected. Meanwhile, all that is chaste and pure and holy is poo-pooed, it's demeaned, and we're going to see that it's going to be punished. That's exactly what we see, by the way, in this Bill C-4. Evil is enshrined, those participating in it are protected, and the good and the right and those who would proclaim the gospel are outlawed. I had it read to you this morning, but this is the fulfillment, undoubtedly, in our time of the nations being in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things, the kings of the earth taking their stand and the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And God who sits in the heavens is not threatened by this. He laughs. Beloved, God has mercifully borne with this nation for a lot of years. A nation that has refused to listen, a nation that has rejected his revelation, a nation that is steeped in flagrant rebellion. And it is true that patience is one of God's glorious attributes. But his patient, merciful, and compassionate posture with this country will not last forever. As men have said, God's mill grinds slow, but it grinds sure, and it grinds small. In fact, the insanity of our day, really, <laughs> the folly of it, the, the craziness of it all is evidence. Where we are and what we see being expanded, expounded every night on the news is evidence that we are, in fact, under God's judgment and a long way down that road already. Which brings us to our third point. We have abandoned revelation. We have embraced rebellion and thirdly, we have incurred retribution. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. This is a watershed passage which we have covered many, many times, and there is no time this morning for a detailed exposition of it. But we do want to look at it with a wide-angle lens And I just want to make some comments as we move our way through it. Understand that we cannot start at verse 18. You must start with a context. And the context for what Paul is going to say in verses 18 through the end of the chapter is found really in verse 16. 
where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's he saying? I am not ashamed to declare this gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. No matter your gender, no matter your sexual orientation, no matter your tall, short, whatever your race, whatever your, your I, sh- I shouldn't say that, there's one race, whatever your ethnic, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, the, the, the point is that salvation here through the gospel is offered to everyone. And then he brings the indictment after he talks about the glory of the gospel of which he's not ashamed. And he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, note this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is truth that men know, but they shove it away. They ignore it. They keep it at a distance. And they are culpable because of that. That is a moral issue, to reject the truth of God. And note, he says in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. There is an internal witness. For God made it evident to them. That is to say that every man, woman, and child knows that there is a God and knows that they are accountable to God and knows that they have sinned against God, knows that they have not met his standard. And you say, what about the atheist? And because we don't have time to really develop it, I'll just say that God doesn't believe in atheists. There is no such thing as an atheist. There are people who play at atheism. That is their tool of suppression. That is the way they keep God at a distance because their conscience would tell them that God in fact exists because God made it evident to them. They didn't need a parent to do that. God made it evident to them. And then he says not only is there an internal witness, but there's an external witness to the reality of God founded in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature note this, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Again, what do we see? We see that revelation is crystal clear, not only internally, but what man takes in through the eye gate externally, they understand. There must be a divine creator. He must be powerful. so much so that they are without excuse. Revelation is clear and they are culpable. Verse 21 just states it right up front. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It is normal for man to worship, every man. The question is not whether you are a worshiper, it is what or whom do you worship. God made man that way. God revealed himself to man 
And though they knew him, they did not honor him. That's a word for worship. They did not worship God. They didn't give thanks to God, but instead they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened and we became foolish altogether. And the evidence of that foolishness is expressed in verse 23 when it says that we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, the wonder of this God, we exchanged it for the for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We traded the creator. We exchanged the glory of the creator for the commonness of the creature. Like ungrateful children at, at Christmas who receive a gift but never acknowledge that you as the giver. And men worshipped all that God has made. Men worshipped themselves. Men worshipped idols. Men worshipped four-footed creatures and birds and crawling things. And again, man is morally culpable. We traded diamonds for dirt. And in return, verse 24 Therefore, God gave them over. That's a very important phrase that we're going to find two more times in this text. God gave them over. That is a judicial term. He gave them over. How? What did he do? What did he give mankind over to? Well, here it is. He gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. What is he saying? The word is akatharsia. You know what cathartic means? It's cleansing. Well, akatharsia is, is unclean. It, it, what he's saying in this verse is, is that in judgment, God gave men over to the lusts of their heart, to uncleanness. But then he tells us that that uncleanness had something to do with their bodies being dishonored. And what he's speaking of here is that men were given over, really, I mean, more broad than this, but certainly to this, and that is sexual immorality. Sex has always been a, a battlefield to determine a man's loyalties, always. And God gave mankind over. Listen to the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel or his body in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like a non-Christian who does not know God. See what he's saying here is that he gave men over to sexual immorality, and that sexual immorality began to dominate us. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And for this reason, note this again, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function of that for that which is unnatural, lesbianism. And in the same way, also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. 
men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of that error. Lustful sexual impurity and indulgence and the dishonoring of our bodies gave way to homosexuality. And we have watched that happen in our culture. And then in verse 28, again, man in his foolishness does not listen, did not repent. And it says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, do you see the issue? Not acknowledging God not worshiping God, not honoring God, not fearing God. Seeing that they even then did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, here we are a third time, to a depraved mind. That is a mind that doesn't think straight, a mind that is not functioning well. A depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Total impropriety. Outright depravity. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like our evening news. Just look at it, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding and untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and all they know, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, though they know that the judgment of God falls upon them for this thing somewhere in the future, the party just continues. They give hearty approval. They do these things and they give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, we are just rushing headlong into sin and destruction. James White, commenting on this passage, says, in essence, God says, if what you want, if what you wish is to wallow in your sin, then your punishment will be to do just that, for your sin will consume you. The cycle of sin is vicious and outside of grace, unending. What was once an attraction becomes a degrading addiction. And the man and the woman caught in the trap of sin are dishonored by their servitude to its power. People who rebel against God eventually find themselves freed to revel in their rebellion and that to their demise. As a culture, we think the curtain will never drop. And we dance a fool's jig. We think we're mocking God, but in reality it is he who is mocking us. And our moral defiance has only led us to immorality and enslavement and insanity. We gave up God and he has given us over to do what only a deprived and depraved mind can do. Every imaginable wickedness. It's the only rational, truthful explanation for a culture that kills its young, that lets men into its daughter's swim teams and into their locker room, that promotes every 
deviant sexual behavior that indoctrinates its children in evil, that deliberately deconstructs and redefines the family, that permits women to marry women, that allows husbands to adopt children, a culture that turns its men into women, a culture that takes its women and puts them on the front line. A culture that defunds its police in the assumption that authority is unnecessary because man is essentially good. A society that sends terrorist stimulus checks. Did you see that? I, I mean, I'm shaken. It is absolutely nuts. And every one of these is in God's face. Every one of these is defiance of him and of his creation design. And I would say to you, beloved, I'm going to talk more about this next week, but there is no greater expression of defiance than to shake your fist at your creator and say, I will not even have you define me at a biological level. You have nothing, nothing to say to me. And to be so convinced in that, to rise up against the potter and say, why did you make me this way? And to go so far in the ruse that you're even willing to to take medication and to have your body mutilated so that you can defy God. Which, by the way, does not make a male a female or vice versa, right? Your, your sexuality is written on every strand of DNA in every cell in your body. To shake your fist and say, God, you will not rule over me. You will determine nothing about me. I reject you and I am utterly autonomous. I tell you, good friend, God will look at you if you persist in this and he will say, all right, you can have what you want, but you will not be happy and ultimately it will destroy you in the end. My friend, there's better for you in repentance and in the grace offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will right your thinking. He will fix you. And every one of us, as I said at the beginning of this message, needs to be fixed. I'm not looking at you saying, I have no need of fixing. I have need of fixing. I have more need of fixing than you have need of fixing. I'm very acquainted with my need for fixing. And even that, I don't know how much I need to be fixed. God alone knows. But Jesus Christ will make you right if you will come to him in faith and repentance. He will forgive your sin and he will right the wrongs. To defy your maker is only to seal your own demise. And that's where we are as a nation. And beloved, I I, I need to close here, but I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters in, in the Lord here at church, you cannot escape this. You cannot and we dare not cower in the face of this. Every last one of us is called to account to stand on the truth, to stand firm in the faith, to be unshakable and immovable 
on a gospel and on a word of, of, of God, on the Bible, that is the only solution to the ails that we see. It is the only way that sinners will be converted and be saved. And I tell you that when you stand, you've got to understand that in this current climate, the consequences for you and for this church and for the church at large who are salt and light, you are going to be opposed for there will be persecution for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Darkness hates light. It flees from light. It distances, it seeks to put it out. It seeks to put it on a dimmer switch. I tell you, we must shine by the power of the Spirit of God and in obedience to the truth, in the purity of our own lives, in the truth of what we speak, we must shine. That is Christ's call for the moment. And I want to give you in a couple of weeks a, a, a fuller articulation of how we respond to all of this. But I do want you to acknowledge the reality that God who, who knows the times and habitations of our life, has put you in this moment. Not Spurgeon's moment, not Calvin's moment, not Augustine's moment, not Athanasius' moment, this moment. This is our moment. By God's kindness. And he will supply the strength and the boldness to stand firm. And we need to remember that our aim is not and never has been to recover the good old days of America. No, we are aiming at higher things, not America as our country, but another country, a better one, an enduring one, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That is what we're after. And so I would offer this to you, which is just to twist my outline in this message around a little bit. Instead of abandoning revelation, we must embrace revelation. We need to be like Ezra who set his heart to study the law of his Lord and to do it and then to teach all Israel. Instead of embracing rebellion, we need to abandon rebellion. We must repent of our own sexual sins. We must allow as we take the log out of our own eye, to be humbled by all of that so that we come to people living a life that confronts wickedness and speaking a message that confronts wickedness and by that then finally preaching the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who have incurred his retribution so that they too might be saved. And this is not going to be easy and you will often be met with hostility but we need to remember in the midst of that hostility that we are not their enemies. We are not their enemies. Though they may view us that way and treat us that way, we are not their enemies. One author puts it this way, Christians do not hurl truth like a spear at a sinful world. We are called to live the truth, to teach the truth, to be the truth, to love our neighbors on the basis of that truth, end quote. Christ is a mighty Savior who redeems the sexually immoral. And if he didn't, there wouldn't be a person in our midst who could stand. But love does not retreat in a day like our own. And so it is with compassion and kindness and genuine love that we call all sinners to Christ. For we are not ashamed of the gospel 
for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray as the men come forward to pass the elements this morning. Our Father, we read these things and our hearts are grieved. Grieved for this country, grieved for relatives that we know, grieved for friends that we have. Grieved perhaps even for our own sinful indulgence. Grieved over the brokenness of our pasts. And so, Lord, you have bidden us come to the table. Come so that we might remember the Lord Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save that which was lost, who came to give his life atonement for many, who came to give his life on the cross that he might bear the stroke that was due to us for our sexual sin and all other sins. And Lord, we look to you and we pray first for your church. Judgment begins there and Lord, we have further to go and we pray that you would grant us strength and grace to stand firm upon your word. Pray that you would help us, Lord, to resist against the evil one and against the onslaught of our, our flesh and the world as we are tempted regularly in this area, Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand firm and to dependently trust in the, in the power that you supply to live obedient lives by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, beyond that, we, we pray for us as a church that our testimony would be bold, that we would walk in holiness and obedience. Lord, that the life of Christ might be seen in us as we follow in his footsteps. Lord, we pray for your church at large that we would trumpet the truth and stand firm. And Lord, we do stand with our Canadian brothers who undoubtedly will be sorely tried by all of this. And Lord, we ask that you would extend your hand in mercy and compassion to save many through the preaching of your word in these days. We praise you and we thank you for the cross of Christ. And Lord, lead us now as we confess our sins, we ask in Christ's name.